Hey, Danielle. Hi. So good to meet you. Hello. Great to meet you, too. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear your story. You have an unusual background. <laughs> I do. I actually started out first part of my life as a pastor. So I went to seminary. Well, in undergrad, I was a religion major and I was pre-law and I just fell in love with my theology classes. I fell in love with my Hebrew class and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a scholar. I'm going to teach. I'm going to be a professor and teach. And so I went to seminary and kept loving all the theology and philosophy and the pastoral care. I just loved all of it and still thought I was going to be a professor. And then I stumbled into a church that was really unique and different because my issue has been that I've always really loved spiritual stuff, but I haven't always connected with church. So <laughs> it's a weird thing to be around a bunch of people that want to be clergy when you yourself maybe don't like to go to church that much. So I was trying to figure out what that looked like for me. You felt the connection to the higher source, but you didn't like the dogma in which you were thrown into. Yeah, I think the issue was that church was the place where I felt the least connected to God, actually. I could find it like way easier if I was just walking around or on my rooftop or reading a book or but I loved all the ideas of God. And I should say too, I guess I should start and back up and say I'm half Lebanese and my fam my Lebanese side of the family is Druze, which is a very small religious group. We're two offshoots from Shia Islam and it's very esoteric. And so I grew up with Texas Southern Baptist dad who didn't go to church, but had that in the water. And then my esoteric Lebanese side of the family and so my concept of God was always a little bit big and messy and wonderful. So I just want to make sense of all of that. But, and seminary helped a lot, but it was definitely not a straight line for me to all that. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, because of all those questions and loves and thinking, I wanted to create a kind of a church or a faith community where people like me could, in, could encounter the story of Jesus particularly, but just the story of God in a way that felt natural. So that's what I did for the first 15, 20 years of my life is that I was a part of a group of people who were trying to figure out how to do that differently. So it was very artistic. It was holistic. We did poetry. We did conversation instead of a message or a sermon. It was like a dialogue. What are we sensing together that the truth is in this stuff? So that's what I did in like my former life. And then I stepped away from being the head of the pastor of that church and decided I want to write some books. So I wrote a couple of books and was exploring some stuff. And in the middle of that, I was walking my dogs one day and this phrase soul ninja came to me. And I was like, what is that? So I like ran home and I wrote down the word, the phrase soul ninja. I had no idea what it meant, but I just knew this was going to be a very important thing for me. So I started reading all these books about the ninja. I just started looking for any English translation of anything ninja related, which a lot of it is just, as you can imagine, dumb and very alpha male. But under that, there was some other cool stuff. And then I happened into a leadership cohort that felt like they were talking about what I thought soul ninja might mean. And so I applied to that and got in. And it was led by a bunch of Tibetan Buddhists. And that was amazing. And I thought, okay, this is a piece of my spirituality that was missing. There's all this stuff that I've studied. And in seminary, I studied Islam. I studied Sufism. Like it was a very broad, open program. But I had not spent any time in Buddhism, which seemed ridiculous. And so this was such a good, wonderful gift for me to hop into that. And so I took up meditation and I started diving into that and just realized what a gift it was to just personally my overall spirituality of, I think the whole point of all the world religions are all spirituality that's healthy and good is that we want to show up in the world in a way that makes us feel like we're meaningful and that it makes life feel meaningful and in a way that actually benefits people. So this idea of the, the Buddhist bodhisattva felt to me like what I'd been trying to get at my whole life, right? That's the whole point is you show up in service to others and you do that because it actually helps you to be that kind of person.
Can you explain to the listeners what Bodhisattva is in case they don't know? Yeah, yeah. So the, the Buddhist understanding of a Bodhisattva is someone who seeks enlightenment, but once they reach enlightenment, they continually choose to come back into the realm. So they don't incarnate out of it. They just keep coming back so that they can continue to be in service to all living beings. So the goal in some forms of Buddhism is just enlightenment. But in for a bodhisattva, it's not just enlightenment, it's enlightenment and you keep coming back and trying to share that with others. So it's this really developed service of being in the world in a way that helps people get to a higher state, get to a higher form of consciousness and understanding connection. So even if you reached enlightenment and you could opt out of the wheel of reincarnation, you choose to come back in so that you can be in service to people. And the intention of that is that you can hold space so that people can raise their conscious awareness to the space that you're holding for them. So it's, that's the form of service that it takes. So that's the idea. When did you come to that realization? Yeah, well, when I read that, I thought, well, sure, this is what Gandhi does. This is what Jesus did. This is what Muhammad did. Every single religious tradition on the planet is trying to say this thing, which is it doesn't go well if you don't recognize that we're all interconnected and recognize that we have to all together hold this sense of higher self so that we can all raise our awareness to this place where we reach enlightenment. That happens when you, when you elevate your own understanding of what's going on and you hold your center. And then when you do that, you realize people around you are more able to hold their center. And then that's when change happens, not just for individual people internally, but for systems. When we all raise our vibrations together, that's when racism starts to get dismantled or freedom happens. Those are harder things to seek, but it all happens in the same exact process of this seeking to serve. Mm -hmm. And the way that you teach is finding that universal language within all religions and all philosophies. So one can invoke and call upon the God that they feel within themselves. Yes, because it's universal. And this is the thing I think too, that was the difficulty I think of being for me of being in a, a particular tradition. I have to say that's my home story, right? That I, I was raised in that story of Christianity, but it's also not my only home base. Once you realize the heart of that story, you realize there's this universal rhythm within it that all of us are seeking. And so for me, when I started Soul Ninja, it was like, I just want to make sure I'm hearing it right. Because I would hear, for example, I think one of the earliest things I learned was by Buddhist teacher was, he would talk about generosity. And I was like, gosh, okay. So in a Western Christian context, that has a very particular meaning. I don't think that's what the Buddhist meaning of generosity is. I don't know if they're exactly the same. So I was like, how on earth do I feel the difference of that? And so I thought, well, honestly, the best way to understand that is to start practicing it. So you read about it, you think about it, you try to do it in your life. And so that's how I started doing these little projects that I do on the blog is that I was like, I want to just feel it out in my body, this Buddhist wisdom, so that I can really get to that nitty gritty of, okay, but what is generosity like these teachers were saying? And how do I practice that? And how does that expand the way that I have known the word generosity in my own life or whoever's reading, whatever, whatever tradition they are coming from or whether they're a tradition at all. How can this expand our understanding of what generosity might look like and might mean for us? It's in the practice that it gets really good. Can you explain the difference in which what you felt and how your understanding yeah. of the concept expanded? Yeah, so, gosh, it just got so much bigger. I remember hearing generosity being something that we owed. I have to say, too, I wasn't really taught this in my family. My family was pretty open, as I told you briefly, from kind of their roots. But I remember a church answer maybe would be, well, everything comes from God. And so generosity is this way that you give back to God. And it almost had this sort of negative thing underneath it, like you should. It had a big should behind it. Do you know what I mean? And I think, I don't think that's right, but I think that's often how it's taught. And when I practice generosity as part of my, as a paramita, as this like Buddhist virtue, it was way more about not being attached, just realizing that 
it's all moving around anyway. This is all a bunch of moving parts. And so there wasn't really a big should underneath that because obviously there's no God to be mad if you don't share it or whatever. There was no way to get caught up in any of that for anyone because it's just about the movement of the universe being one that's generative and generous. And you just, you should hop into that. That should just be something that you do. And so generosity is a way for you to realize that you can't Holding on to a bunch of stuff and owning stuff doesn't keep you from suffering. It doesn't keep you from feeling sad. It doesn't keep you from any of these feelings that we're trying to avoid. It's just a coping mechanism that doesn't work very well. And so really the better thing is just to be generous and let it flow. And that felt so expansive in the ways that I understood all that I had learned about it. It was a nice add-on that sort of allowed the whole thing to have more breath in it, more breathing room. That's what I love about Eastern philosophy, whether it be Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or yoga or Buddhism, it's the framework of this natural way that we in Western society aren't taught. But as soon as it, we learn a few things, it clicks in our mind. Oh, of course, it's right. natural. This is human. This is nature. This is the way that it is. Yes. It's just, it's all cycles and rhythms, right? The last book that I wrote was in 2016, and it's called Original Blessing. And the whole point of it was that, particularly for Christianity, one of the ways that we lose that sense of naturalness is this idea of original sin, right? You're, something's wrong with you, your humanity's sinful, like God had to come and fix this problem in Jesus or whatever. And the funny thing about that is that for 400 years, at the very beginning of um, Christianity, that wasn't the story told at all. And Judaism looks at us and is like, what are you even talking about when you make that story, what that's about? That's not what that was about. So that book was, was really that same exact thing that you just said, like trying to get back to this idea that we're born human. What that means is that we're going to do things that are beautiful and we're going to do things that are painful and harmful and we have to hold the tension of that as people that we have to just say i have this capacity to be really helpful to people and be in service to people or i have a capacity to actually be terrible to people if i wanted and it's my responsibility to try to make my choices as positively as i can to be a, a gift to others and not harm and when you get out of that framework of should and bad and sin and blah, 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 like what you do is you just come back to what Eastern philosophy has always known, which is, yeah, there's this natural rhythm in the world. Again, that in Sufism, that in Hinduism, that in Buddhism, you see it all over the place and all these religions that are like, yeah, you've got to come back to just the humanity of the thing and just be with whatever that is and all the mess that it is. But if you just flow with it, you see the wisdom. Do you think gets in the way of humans coming to that place of every day is a choice. Yeah, I think some of it, well, so again, in my context, I think a lot of it was people being told that they couldn't be any better. Like this is the, this is the major downside of telling people that they're quote sinful. It's, oh, well, what are you gonna expect good to come from that person if you tell them that they're not capable of doing things that way? That's a really bad way to set up human flourishing. I think for Western Christians, there's that, it's set up that way. It's, you're not any, you're not any good. And <laughs> you wonder why people can't get out of their own mess. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think too, there's this, there's this resistance to show up in our full selves. And I think that's universal. I think that's really just a thing that all of us feel. And you can see that sometimes like on Instagram when somebody's almost trying too hard to say that they're being authentic and you're like, sweetheart, if you're trying that hard, it isn't. Like just drop into it. Just let yourself be whatever you are. And there's no like force. There's no forcing it with your true self, with your soul. It's just, it emanates and you don't really have to do the work. And I think for Americans, particularly, we, we are not remotely taught how to do that. We're told to hustle. We're taught to get it done. We're taught to be productive. And none of those things are ways that we learn to show up in our souls. So I think it's pretty counterintuitive to us at this point to figure out how to do that. And if we can't do that, then we can't remotely show up for other people because it all starts with us being able to say, well, what matters to me? Why am I upset about the kids in the cages at the border? And if you don't know why it's upsetting to you, then you certainly aren't gonna know what to do about it. 
So we have to come home to ourselves and be with that place inside of us if we're going to be able to be of any service to anyone else. Have you always been curious? Is this what sparked your path? Yes. I, it took me a while to figure out that's not normal, but as a little kid, I was definitely the one that was like, what is God? Like, it's so interesting that people are mentioning this God word in these very different ways, just in my own life. Like my, like I said, my grandfather was Drew's and he loved Khalil Gibran and he would talk about God in this very philosophical way. And then I went to an Episcopal school and so we would go to chapel and it was like you could smell the incense and all of the sounds and all this like high church liturgy stuff and they talked about God in this totally different way. And then on the streets of West Texas, there was this other way people talked about God. It just, I just as a kid thought, this is super fascinating. What are they even trying to point to? Is this the same thing? <laughs> all these people what are they talking about? So yeah, I've always had this longing to know what draws us to, and I say the word God, but it's really just whatever that thing is that's beyond us. So spirit or divine source or universe or whatever it is, the word that we use to describe that. I think the bucket of we know what that feels like and I'm just interested in all the ways people talk about whatever that feeling experience is. What did they learn when they tapped into that? Oh, I know. Me too. I love that about life, hearing people's own relationship and when they first heard the voice. Right. Yes. And how like consistent that voice is. You know what I mean? Just across time, culture, across all the things. No one ever says, I heard that voice and it said, be divisive. Or <laughs> one of the things I joke when people have a hard time with the, this concept of original blessing, which in Buddhism is like basic human goodness. I always joke and say, okay, you can't write this off because there's nobody that's had this like otherworldly experience that comes back and says, I've seen behind the curtain, you guys, and it's just a shit storm back there. No one says that. They all say, it's this unity. I felt connected. There's like, nobody said, oh my God, it's just an utter hellacious disaster of like violence back there. And we should all just cut each other up into pieces. No one is saying this. So this we know for sure that whatever that beyondness is calling us to this sense of unity and love and harmony. Can you share some stories that stick out to you in your mind of when you had an experience that really made an impression on you that fueled you to go further and fueled you to go deeper in your service? Yeah, I feel like I'm trying to think if I have one moment. I certainly, I've certainly had, I had a moment when I was in Jerusalem and I was standing looking out at the whole city and I was just thinking, it's so crazy that three major world religions all find their home in this one city and how divisive that's been on the human level, but how holy that is on this beyond level that it shares even like physical space. Yeah, that's strange. It's weird that three, and of course, I know they're all like related, the three Abrahamic religions. They all have this deeply meaningful connection to just this one little city of Jerusalem and this one little country and this one little part of the world and how it's, it is like really heartbreaking that has caused so much division. And it's so, I, I guess I just felt overwhelmed by the sadness of that juxtaposed by how much the beyondness has just shown up in this one place of all the place. And it's not like it's even a, that special. You know what I mean? I think this, that the, the fullness probably is true in every city in the world, but for whatever reason, we have access to it a little more in Jerusalem or something. Just the sadness of the, the tension between that. I remember having this deep feeling of the unity is right there. And yet, and yet it, it eludes us. But I remember feeling the power of the unity of just all of it really powerfully that day. But I think I feel that on a good day in meditation. Like I think when I drop into meditation past kind of my monkey brain, you get that feeling of Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams sent out something the other day. She's, the, she's a queer black Buddhist teacher. And she sent out this thing about 
how the universe is just love and the universe loves you and you have a right to be here just as you are because the universe loves you and that's what you feel when you're in meditation and i was like yes there's sometimes when you just drop into that silence underneath the noise that you realize if you feel that love how can you not show up for other people it just doesn't make any sense not to yeah i think that's really important what you said at the end how in the quiet moments the voice can also appear when it's pretty mundane you're not doing anything special maybe you're just going on a walk in nature and no one's around and you finally have stillness yeah just pop in Yes. Yeah. And I think that's important because like you don't have to travel to any certain pilgrimage place for it to feel that. It's like you could just plop down at your house at any time and give it 10 minutes and it could come to you, which is because it's true. Do you know, it's that naturalness. It's, this is not quote otherworldly. It's, it's our world. It's just underneath things. And we've got to just tap into that feeling of unity to, to remember it. Definitely. Yeah. In my early 20s, I would travel around to spiritual hotspots and I finally realized, oh, God is within me. Here I am across the sea searching for this thing, but it's in me. It's right yeah, there. Right. You are a spiritual hotspot. Like <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It takes some time to realize that, doesn't it? It does. And it, again, I think part of the reason why we don't think that is because it feels really overwhelming. Like you have to have a container in yourself big enough to hold that truth before you can let that in. It's a lot to say I'm a spiritual hotspot. And just anytime I drop in that universal love is connected to me and is me and I'm part of it. Are there still moments in your life where you feel moments of disconnection? Sure. That's normal. Yeah, I think that's normal. And I, as always, it comes when I'm stressed or flustered or pissed off, just having a bad day. And it's in those moments when the more time you spend cultivating that thread of connection back to that place of universal love, then the more you feel it when you find yourself away from it. So I think it, it never goes away, but it, it becomes more noticeable when I'm like, oh God, I'm certainly getting sassy in my head about all these people around me. When you're just like, oh, that guy needs to hurry up or, oh, this car is going too slow. And I know that's about me and not these other people. And so I know it's my job at that point to come back home to myself and be like, okay, where can I go to draw back into that place where this is not the scattered way that I'm experiencing reality. Can you talk a little bit about ego and how that can get in the way of one's spiritual practice or put the blinders on that makes it to tunnel vision? Yeah. So in my current work, I'm a spiritual director, which is I help companion people to understand how their ego is operating is actually one way of describing what I do. And so the ego's job is to keep everything the same. It's just to keep everything really consistent and to be in control and not to let anything mess with it, which is, first of all, an impossible job for the ego because life will always come and mess with that. And secondly, it's, it just makes you live small because <laughs> if you don't ever try anything new or think anything new or change your mind about things, then there's no way for you to grow and evolve and to become so underneath that ego is the self, like Jung called it the capital S self. You could call it the soul. I use those interchangeably, but when you start to operate from a soul level, you realize that the ego is there just to keep you comfortable. And that a lot of the time it's not, it doesn't have your best interest at heart, right? It's not the thing that's going to get you where you actually are wanting to go, where your longing is calling you. And I think any spiritual practice that we do is just a practice of trying to get aware of how our ego gets in the way of the growth that's trying to happen inside of us. Because I always think, so in yoga terms, I can think of a really practical way that this worked out. I've been doing yoga for I think 19 years now. And for a while, when I first came to Dallas, I found a studio and I loved it and I was super busy. And so I could only go like once a week or twice a week. And I went to the same teacher with the same class every single time. And I got like really good at that class. It was very similar every time. And 
I knew all the poses and my ego just started getting sassy about that. Like I am rocking it in this class. I'm like one of the best students in here. You know what I mean? All that BS. And then that yoga studio closed down and I had to go find a new yoga studio. And the place I went is, was awesome, but it was like totally different. And they had a whole different vibe of doing it. And I was not the best one in the class. I looked like I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I had to laugh at myself that like, oh my God, the ego stories that were happening. It was like, get out. This is not for you. You're not the best. You know, you could just hear. And it just sounded so fifth grade. You know, <laughs> I am a grown ass woman in this yoga class. Like it's really no big deal that I'm not the best one. But I had to listen and just laugh at those stories and realize, okay, actually I was not helping myself at all being in this yoga class for so long that just let me do the same thing over and over again this class, I'm going to have to really figure out my body in a way that I haven't in a while because it's stretching it in new and different ways. And it's putting me in new and awkward positions. And that's actually what yoga is supposed to be for Pete's sake. So I look at that as like a great example of the gift of letting the ego just break. The solidity of the ego just needs to get, it needs to get shattered and you need to unintentionally or intentionally throw yourself into places where you don't have a choice but to grow because then you start realizing how limiting you were to what you could do. And I got to be such a better, I got better at yoga in this place where I expanded my practice. Of course I did. That's like, a parable for all of life. Yeah, for me, my ego really had gotten slashed through my yoga practice as well as psychedelics. Facing myself without anywhere to turn to lie to myself and just see it for what it is. <laughs> Not pretty. No, yeah, there's this inside part of you that is run away. Do uh -huh. not face it. And it takes such courage to just not listen to that voice and just stick with it and see it and just be with it. Yeah. And accept and laugh at yourself and get over it and move on. It's not that yeah. big of a deal. As you said, we're grown ass women. Here's this big bitter voice in our head. That scared little inner child not wanting to change. Yes. And it's, I'm not trying to be an Olympic yoga person. You know what I mean? What am I competing for even in this head of mine? That's like the ego's, well, this isn't going to work. You're not good at this. It's this whole storyline that you're giving me. I'm not going to pick up what you're putting down. This is, that's ridiculous. So yeah, you can just laugh and let it fall to the ground and then let a new story come up in its place. Yeah. Story. That's a big thing of being willing and adaptable to change the story because so many people are attached to that story or attached to that thing that made them a victim. Yeah. We honestly are all living by our stories. So that's part of the work of spiritual direction too is, okay, what story is operating in there and how is that keeping you stuck? What's the gift in there from you that you could say thank you? And then how can you maybe just say the rest of that isn't working for me and it's keeping me really stuck in this place where, again, I think one of the stories is that limiting story of I can't do it or I'm not able to be the change maker or I can't, this is just who I am. When people say, well, I'm just not a meditator. I'm not a, like, this is who I am. It's Well, if you practice it every day, that would just become who you are. But that's, this is the whole point is, yeah, you've got to show up, let it happen. Did you always have this discipline or did you learn that through your yoga practice and through Taekwondo? I have to say, I have always been a fairly, in some ways, disciplined person. I like a lot of variety. So even though I'm disciplined, I'm not, I don't do everything the same every day. But what I do love about yoga and Taekwondo is that it's that discipline of having to go into the body and just be present to what's happening there. It's funny in Taekwondo, particularly you're at first, you're just, you're learning the, how to do the kick or whatever. It's like just all the little dynamics of lift your leg, turn your hip, straighten your toe or whatever. And you're just all in that. And then there comes this point where it starts to shift and it becomes 
It's not the discipline of just practicing it, even though it feels like you're doing it so badly and it does not look like any of the videos you've seen. You're like, I know for sure I am not Bruce Leeing this situation right now. But then you keep at it and you keep at it and you keep at it. And then there's like this, there's like this slide or this shift into it becomes just something that happens. You just are doing the kick. And then it's sometimes you are the kick and that's when you know it's really good because you get into this embodied knowing that goes beyond the discipline even. But unless you have the discipline, you never get there. For me, it's just that sort of riding that wave of knowing that the discipline and the showing up is the thing that gets you to that place where you know it deeper than just that. Yeah, that's why I love these practices because it shows you either on the mat or in the dojo that you practice, practice, and then one day it's embodied, one day it's just there and it's just a part of your being. And that's so much a reflection of life. One day you are just it. Yes, yeah. You weren't a meditator and then you do it for a year and you just are a meditator. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're like amazing at it. You're not the Dalai Lama, but you just, you are. This is something that your body just knows how to do. It's something your mind is trained to do. And it's amazing that we have that capacity. How do your sessions work when people come and work with you? People do spiritual direction in different ways and it's definitely depending on the director and also the person that's coming. Some of this is just intuitive, but usually I just, the whole first session is just listening to the person's story. And okay, you reached out and said, I want a spiritual director or a spiritual companion. I want somebody to help me point out maybe what spirit or source is doing in all this stuff that I'm dealing with. And so I want to get their inklings about that. Okay. What do you think is happening? What brought you here? There's usually a tension or a question or a longing or a need, a desire of some kind that's pulled them into this wanting to connect with me. And so we just spend time exploring that, like what's in that for you? What do you think is being said? And then I also listen for what are the stories that you've got right now that are playing that and where maybe some blocks in that. And I try to think about ways to, to help them see that differently so that they can start to get maybe a broader perspective of why, what might be going on. Because really spiritual companionship or spiritual direction is the thing that's so beautiful about it to me is it's this reminder that we can't even know ourselves without others. I do this for a living and I like to think I'm okay at it. But then when I go to see my spiritual director, she'll say something to me and I'm like, well, shit, I hadn't even remotely thought about that before. Because it's me and I can't see it for myself. I need someone to bear witness to my life and tell me. Part of that process is like you, you offer this sort of holy mirror to someone else and say, this is what I see in you. This is what I think is really, I see your energy light up when you talk about this. And I wonder if you know how important that is to you or gosh, I see that this makes you, your face just got heavy. I could see your shoulders sink when you started to talk about that. Like what's in that for you? And sometimes people are like, oh my God, I didn't know that I felt heavy about that. Or So we need one another to be able to understand the mysteries of what's going on inside of us. And so that's really what the process is just doing that act of holy listening and trying to uncover that mystery together. Do you find that you work with a certain type of person more often than others? Do you work with women specifically, or is it all across the board? I would say it's more women than men, but I do have a good handful of men that come to see me. Yeah, it's really a lot of people. I tend to have a handful of clergy people that are, you know, pastors by trade, because I think particularly people who like are in spiritual leadership of some kind, they're looked to for answers, but they don't have anyone to help them and to serve them. So I think it's really, it makes a lot of sense for them particularly to want someone to be with them because it can be lonely. Yeah. And heavy. And heavy. Yeah. You're holding so many people's stories like goodness. You get, you hear a lot of the BS going on in people's houses when you're in that position and it's holy work, but it's heavy work. But yeah, I know there's people from all over and there are people from very different levels of how they understand the divine, which I think is awesome. It's one of the reasons why I really love this job is that I get to be in the big playground of that and let that just be what it is. Yeah, it's really lovely. So you have Soul Ninja, that's your latest book. 
And what are the two others? Well, Soul Ninja is my blog. And then I had three books that are particularly Christian in nature. I haven't written one since 2016, but the first one was called Boundary Breaking God. The second one was called Where Jesus Prayed. That book was very specifically about how I dropped into to wordless and contemplative prayer when I was on pilgrimage. And then the third one is Original Blessing, which I talked about briefly. That's about this idea of just, what if we're just human? <laughs> and what if Jesus was just a really lovely example of how to be a human and maybe we just let all the shame and sin junk go and just move back into that place where this is about wisdom and about insight and about intuition and about soul and retain that the early vibe of what that's supposed to be. Soul Ninja is where I get to practice my Buddhism with others who want to come along for the ride. So that's just on my blog. Yeah. And what's the website? It's beasoulninja.com. B-E-A Soul Ninja? Yes. Okay, great. And where can people find you on Instagram? It's be a soul ninja. There's dots in between b.a.soul.ninja. So those are the two places to find me. Okay, great. And what do you do? What are your daily routines to keep you happy, healthy, optimal self? Well, I work out a lot. I really love and value moving in the body. So working out is a thing that I tend to do every day. When it's not a crazy ice storm outside, I usually walk my dogs every day and exercise. I do Taekwondo. I do yoga. I do meditation certain days and I do contemplative prayer other days. So I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And then the other thing that kind of keeps me sane lately is that I keep a dream journal. That's a place just where I write down my dreams, but then I might do a collage about it or do a drawing on it or allow it to be just a symbol. I sit in the symbol of it and let that sort of teach me or open me up to whatever it is that's going on in that for me. And that's always been really a good place lately for me to feel I'm being grounded in what's happening inside. That's a few of my practices. So you're constantly checking in with yourself. Yes. Well, for this work, I have to, because if I'm going to be a good listener for other people, I have to know what's going on with me so that I, I don't get triggered or if I don't get ambushed by somebody else's process. So I do have to be pretty aware of what's going on in me, which is, it's a good practice to have. I don't mind being called to that level of, of awareness. And I've, I still keep a spiritual director and I have a dream worker too that I meet with pretty regularly. So I have people that sort of check in on me and do this work for me too, so that I'm in my best place to do it for others. Mm. We're all just serving each other. <laughs> and walking each other home as Ram. We're all just walking each other home. That's right. What is contemplative prayer? I've never oh, heard so, before. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, part of the Christian mystic tradition. So it's, it's wordless. So you, it's very similar to meditation, except for that instead of sitting to practice detachment from your thoughts, you are sitting to pay attention to your connection to the divine. So you don't say any words. It's not like you're asking for things or even asking for things for other people. You just sit in silence and decide to show up to the presence of the divine. You just allow that to be your whole focus for five or 10 minutes. It's the only form of prayer that makes sense to me these days. It seems like it does all the things that the other kinds of prayer are supposed to do. So that's my home base for that. I love how you are so connected to yourself. It's really great. And you do so many things to make sure you are. Yeah, because it is, you do have to cultivate it. And like I said, once you are there, you can stay there and skip a few days and you're fine. But yeah, it's definitely an, an intentional way of being. But yeah, that's the whole purpose of spiritual practice, in my opinion, is being the whole to yourself. Totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where a lot of people get confused or turned off because they don't realize that's the point. Yeah. And I think the other issue too, is that I know certainly when it, in my old school days of being a pastor, I'm in Texas. And so a lot of people were in churches that were pretty strict and had experiences that I certainly didn't have. And they would come in and be like, oh my God, like I can't pray. And I'm like, 
I think maybe your versions of prayer that you learned are limiting. Like you realize we have 2000 years of just this one tradition's experience of how this goes and you only learned one that happened 50 years ago. You know what I mean? Let's get some, let's get some air in this space for you. Maybe it doesn't work for you because it's not the one that works for you. And there's just all these other ways to pray. There's just endless, actually endless ways for you to connect. And so one of my, actually my biggest joys is helping people find those places of natural connection for them. It's, oh, well, I didn't know it could feel like this. Yeah, but we have just this an embarrassment of riches of all these different traditions. And even any, each tradition has an embarrassment of riches and how they understand connecting to that source. And we just don't know about them. And so we think that we, they th we think they're not for us, but we just maybe haven't found the one that is yet. So for someone who is, for a lack of a better term, a little lost or still in their trauma or suffering, what would you recommend to them? Would you recommend to them just try a bunch of things and see what works for you? How do they begin their process of healing and of discovery? That's a really good question. I'd say the first thing is to just joyfully drop all the things that aren't working. Just have a party of it. <laughs> have absolutely no doubt or concern about the fact that you might lose something if you just decide to let all that go. Because those things are not, they don't hold the truth in them, ultimately. And so you could maybe just start from scratch, for one, and feel really like you've got this new, fresh, open space to breathe in. And then you could just ask yourself, okay, where in my life have I felt a connection to source, a connection to spirit? Has that ever happened to me? And if it has, what did that feel like? Well, maybe take a minute to just get a sense of what that felt like in your body and try to remember that sense, that felt sense. And then, okay, if I tried to make that a practice, what could that look like? I've had people that have been like, oh my gosh, I think running is my spiritual practice. And it's not for me because I hate to run. <laughs> running for me is like straight discipline. It's I'm just here for the cardio and the heart health. But for some people, they realize, oh my God, something about moving and breathing, all the noise goes away and they just hear stuff clearly on their run or they just come to an awareness on their run or something. And they Nobody gave them permission to say that's a spiritual practice. And I'm like, well, did you come home to yourself on your own? Did you come home to yourself in a way that benefits you and probably everybody around you because you're better? How is that not a spiritual practice? That's exactly what a spiritual practice is. So whether it's baking bread or running or whatever, you have permission to call that your spiritual practice if that's what it's doing. You should feel more whole. You should feel more connected. 100%. Do you have any recommendations for people of what really helped you along your way to come to this place? Either teachers or books or videos or anything. Gosh, so many. I'm a nerd. So one of the other things that I do as a spiritual practice is I read a lot and that's not everybody's thing. And again, if it's not your thing, it's totally not for you. But I really love reading about the stuff that, that I find interesting. So I read a book last week on the Kabbalah and I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. It's not my tradition, but I just, mystic Judaism is so cool. And there's so much wisdom in that. Meditation teacher, my Buddhist teacher is Ethan Nickturn. And he has a great book called The Road Home about Buddhism. That's really great for somebody that kind of doesn't know exactly what that is, and maybe it's just thinking about Buddhism, that's a good place to start. My favorite meditation book that I suggest to people is How to Meditate by Pema Chodron. I think that's one of the best intro books to meditation. She covers all the bases and she makes you laugh because she makes you realize that her head is also a hot mess and she's way better at meditating than the rest of us. So like, what a load off. We don't have to get quote good at it. I love the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. She interviews spiritual leaders and thinkers and writers and poets. And I always, I don't think there's one that I've listened to that I haven't just found profound and beautiful. It just makes you be proud to be a human to listen to that podcast. Mostly it's just introducing stillness into your life too. And I think we've learned that with COVID. So maybe people are like, oh my God, the last thing I need right now is more stillness or silence. But 
transformation and clarity comes from silence and stillness first. So that's just a general blanket thing that I would encourage people to find is just know that you're okay if you're just still and quiet and that you can actually just be in that space and be with whatever comes up and that you're strong enough to hold it and maybe figure some really big things out just by sitting there. Oh yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah, that was really beautiful. I wanna hear about you. Me, oh my gosh, about how my journey started. I just wanna hear all the things. I would like to do a whole podcast on just tell me about you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in ways we are similar because I've always been very curious as well. But my entry point was trauma. I had a lot of abuse when I was growing up in my childhood. So I had all these stories and all these, I had a lot of angst and anger and frustration. I tried to kill myself three times before I even turned 16. Wow. Yeah. So it was intense. And when I turned 21, that was the first experience I had with God and it completely transformed my life and that's when I went down the rabbit hole what is this who is that who am I huh (laughs) and I was introduced to psychedelics and I was introduced to yoga and meditation and for me spirituality comes from direct experience because yeah. because you tell me something's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I'm not going to believe you until I feel it myself. Mm-hmm. And all the things that I was reading about started happening. For example, with yoga, I practiced Ashtanga for a long time. And with each series comes with a different intention and reason behind the poses and the breathing practices. So the first series is all about purifying the body and getting the bones in the right places in the joint. So your Nadi Shodhana can be clear and everything is flowing freely. You don't have any blockages. I felt that, it worked. And then I moved into the second series where that purifies your nervous system and you become, I hate the word clean, but you become clean, purifies your body and your mind. And again, I felt that. So exploring all these different avenues And with psychedelics on top of that, the experiences that I was having with God through psychedelics, the scriptures of yoga and Buddhism gave me the proper language to define what the hell was happening. I was like, oh my God, these guys, they knew these Chinese, these Indian people thousands of years ago, they wrote it down on a leaf. (laughs) And then they Thank God someone kept it, you know? Yeah. And how amazing and intelligent that they were able to decipher what was going on in the map of consciousness and put it into words. That's what really fascinated me. Right? Yeah. Like the Rig Veda and that whole system. And then with Buddhism too, the little that I know is exactly the same, Mm -hmm. but different words. So that, yeah, that was the beginning of my healing. I was a yoga teacher and meditation teacher. Also, I practiced cranial psychotherapy for a really long time. And I traveled the world doing that. But I got really burnt out because I was so young. I was in my 20s doing that. And what we were talking about before about how we have to hold this container for so many other people. At that age, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, in craniosacral, that's like a straight up energy exchange. So you've yeah. got to really have a solid, and yeah, when you're 20, I don't even know if that's possible to be able to do that sustainably because it's that's deep energy work, right? Yeah. So I stopped. I told myself maybe when I get older, in my 50s or 60s, when I don't have to do it for money, when it's not a career, I can just give back to people. And then I just went into advertising and started working as a set designer and graphic designer and art director, completely different. And I left it all behind (laughs) and started a new life and kept my spiritual practice really private. 
Yeah. Because that was another thing. I, being so involved in the spiritual community, that concept of ego, it still shows up no matter what community you're in. And Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. It just it, it grossed me out. I'm in LA, so everything is a commodity. Uh, you want to buy crystals infused with whatever in water, holy water. <laughs> That's right. so I'm in Dallas. It's pretty much the same. Oh, I mean, is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is cool, but... That's yeah, I mean, like, fine, but it just, yeah, there's some things that I'm always like, oh, it's just a little cringe. Dallas. It's very Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was my turn off. Yeah, I totally get that. Because yeah. it, it healed me. It changed my life. It gave yeah, me oh gosh, yeah. Well, and I, I love that you decided that your practices are for you because I think it sounds like the thread for you is like coming to home in your body. And that's so important. Your spiritual practices would have to do that as somebody who survived trauma and just do yoga and realize, oh my God, yeah, I got to get these bones in the sockets. That's just like such a holy thing for you to spend your time doing. Of course you did that. Soul, the soul is so smart. Like, of course that's what you needed. And it's so simple too. And and so deep. I spent two decades of my life out of body to feel safe. And finally I found something that made me feel safe in my body. Yes. Yeah. And thank goodness for the coping mechanisms and thank goodness that you don't need them anymore and you can just come home to your body. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really sacred thing when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. And when I saw it being bastardized in this way, it just, it, it made me so sad. Yeah. I get it. It's inevitable, but it's just not my way. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. And I mean, our church had $4 and we were just always lit on a shoestring budget. But I think I have so many friends who are in like hundred year old church buildings and they just, you have a certain, you've got people that are, you're paying and they're, they have families and you think, well, I can't say this prophetic thing. All these people stop giving and we lose the building and everybody loses their job and they can't buy growth. You know what I mean? That just all the BS of having to maintain the institution. That was never my reality, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine how complicated that space is for people. And I couldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. I would feel so phony. Yes. Like you have to keep it going. You have to keep this train rolling down the track and that starts to feel like you're working for somebody else and something else than the stuff that probably got people into it. And in the, in the yoga world and in the meditation, meditation too, like people were like, download this blah, blah, blah for manifesting, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, this just seems like a money scheme. I'm not really sure. It's everywhere. It's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why finding authentic teachers is so important. Yes. Yeah. 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 The people that are in it for the work and for the long haul. Mm -hmm. It's just dating. That's what I recommend to people when they ask is just test them out. Ask them questions. See who you like. See who you resonate with. Wouldn't you say the same? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's exactly like that. Yeah. And to trust what your body is telling you when you get that sense of, when you start to discern the difference between their charismatic and they're charismatic and also there's some substance here because those two things feel differently. There's somebody that could just be charismatic or good looking or whatever. And then it's okay. Well, they happen to be that, but it seems like they're speaking from their soul and that it seems like it's authentic. Those feel different. So just to take the time to discern those little discrepancies. Super important. Definitely. Yeah. Can you explain to me the different types of Buddhism? Is it similar to yoga where there are different lineages and practices that go behind each one? Yes, okay. it is. And actually, I would love to know about the yoga ones because I know there's I know there's all the different schools or whatever, but there's two main branches. And I'm telling you this, I'm, I'm so not an expert, but I have asked my teacher the same question. I'm like, I need you to give me like a family tree of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That would just help because I get it. Like people are like, I don't understand what's a Baptist versus a Presbyterian. I'm like, okay, here's the, let me explain to you how I can totally tell you that map. But Buddhism, I'm like, I don't know. But the main trunk is obviously the original enlightenment that Buddha had. And then there's sort of two main shoots off of that. One of them is the Mahayana and one of them is the 
Vajrayana. So there's the greater vehicle and the lesser vehicle, but one of them is more about internal process and the other one is more about the internal and external. So Tibetan Buddhism is the side that's, it's not just for us, it's not just internal, it's also to serve people. And so the Bodhisattva stuff and the Tibetan stuff, all that is on the side that's like, we aren't just here to reach enlightenment in our own selves, in between our own heads to get lost in the philosophy of it. The point is the practice. It's like how, where the rubber hits the road. So that's the side that I spend the time on because it feels more similar to my own spiritual understanding. So that's like the, that's the quick breakdown. And then of course in that there's like multiple different sections. Where does Zen Buddhism fall in there? Um, okay, so Zen is still on the Mahayana side, but it is separate from Tibetan, right? So they, and it's like a great blend because they do a lot of the philosophy stuff that the other side does. They always are still going back to, well, how's this going to help your neighbor? Like, You've never met a Zen person who isn't thinking about, well, what's the political ramifications of this practice? At least a good Zen monk is going to think of that question. But they tend to be a little more, I think, philosophical maybe than Tibetans. Got it. I love Zen too. Super cool. Yeah, I feel most attracted to Zen. I like Adyashanti a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Love Adyashanti. Yes. Yeah. His audio excerpts that he has on his website are amazing. I love the way he talks. Yes. I feel like I've heard him in like a YouTube talk or something and, and really liked, yeah, really liked what he had to say. Yeah. We're all just trying to describe the direct experience that we've had that is outside of words. So at the end of the day, we're all just fumbling around trying to do that. Yeah. And whatever works for you, like you said, build your own whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny because like when people do that, if they get into it enough, they do have that sense of appreciation for the tradition. You know what I mean? I know sometimes in like news articles or whatever, they're like, oh, this new generation that's like spiritual, but not religious. It's just like a smorgasbord. But actually what I find is that like someone gets into yoga and they read all the things and they learn all the stuff. They actually honor the tradition when they pick the thing that that resonates with them and so they do honor the tradition you know what I mean it's funny how it always happens that way it's no I happened into Buddhism and like I have a straight up meditation teacher that's Buddhist and that was raised Buddhist whose parents are Buddhist and his parents are Buddhist and that's what happens when you really resonate with something and want to make it part of you is that you the lineage just happens. Yeah, anyway. well, you have to learn all the rules before you break them. And you just find out that you want to, and you don't, nobody has to legislate that from on high for you. Like, you just do it because you actually figured out something that helps you feel that connection. And so you just, it just happens. Yeah, it's so good. He actually was doing, I haven't had time because I'm in this dream work training and not doing all this other stuff, but when I have time, I totally will do it. But he does this like Buddhist studies course and I took the intro one and loved it. And then he has an intermediate and I think he's going to add an advance too, but you can do it on Zoom. If you're in New York, you can go. Of course, COVID, I think it was like both and, but it's pretty awesome that he walks you through it. And he's such a weird, it's so weird that he is like a Western American guy who is like a third generation Buddhist. Like, it's just crazy. That's already happened because it's not that common. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a friend who grew up on the ashram in upstate New York, and she's, she's an anomaly to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm like, wait, so like when I was supposed to be in Sunday school, but I wasn't there, like you were at the Sangha? <laughs> I certainly have. I know people who were like, went to the synagogues growing up and whatever, but it's just a whole different thing to be like, oh my God, but that whole time, like you were like at Buddhist Sunday school. I don't, I can't believe it. I didn't know that. I didn't think about how that's a thing, but of course uh -huh. that's a thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> can you tell us again how people can find you if they'd like to do sessions with you and learn more about your work? For sure. Yes. You can go to beasoulninja.com.
And there's a little tab on there about spiritual direction, if that's your thing. If it's not, it's totally fine. But the rest is just me blogging through experiences of figuring out what it means to practice Buddhism as a whoever I am. <laughs> me, just trying to figure out what that looks like. Thank you so much, Danielle. I appreciate it. Great to meet you. So good to meet you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, me too. Bye.